Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, we will segui as we do to politics. Leslie Vinger Murray joins us through Chatham House. She has been such a support to surveillance with perspective on the election. Leslie, we are overwhelmed with news flow. If you were to write today on the election, what would be your lead paragraph? I think the lead paragraph has got to be the extraordinary turnout that we're seeing If you across the board, early voting, uh, in person, by mail. Um, I guess, you know, it's especially interesting in Texas to see that we're, we're just about hitting already the number of voters that actually voted in total in Texas in 2016. We're at about 93 percent of that number. So early, early mm-hmm. voting turned out across the country, but, but especially in certain states is really remarkable. Brief us on your read in of the character of that voting and the assumption by Mr. Trump that Republicans in mass will show up the first Tuesday of November. Is that a correct theme or are we off the mark? Well, I think a lot of people believe that, that are watching this very carefully, that Democrats are more inclined, especially in some of those battleground states, especially in the northern battleground states where COVID has been uh, very bad, that Democrats are more inclined to vote by mail. Of course, we know at this point, anybody who's voting by mail has to carry their ballot in. It's too late to send it in through the Postal Service. The Postal Service is simply not moving quickly enough. But we do expect uh, more Republicans turning out on the day on Tuesday. But I think as people are hearing this message that they cannot actually put their vote from today uh, in, in in the mailbox and assume it will get there on time, we might see some turnaround in that. Um, But yes, I think, and if that's right, of course, you know, what we're led to believe, unless we see a Democratic victory in Florida, North Carolina, um, that this race could then uh, go on for quite some time because it might look like a Republican lead, a Trump lead early on, and then it might begin to change over the next several days. But Tom, you know, there are a lot of people that think it's um, it's very hard to predict how Florida is going to go. It's up for Biden right now. But if it um, if it goes the other way, then, of course, it will take some time potentially to, to know what's happening. Leslie, in eight minutes time, we're going to get the latest read on U.S. jobless claims, the last before the election. Typically during election seasons, the economy dominates in this one. Not as much. And actually, President Trump, for much of the race, dominated and was considered to do better when it comes to the economy among voters. Has that changed? You know, it's really complicated right now. Um, Donald Trump's uh, number, his ratings on the economy have come down. They're still stronger um, than than certainly by far than his handling of the pandemic or any other number of issues. But I think right now, you know, the pandemic, people are seeing the pandemic through two two different lenses. They're seeing it either as a health crisis or they're seeing the pandemic as an economic crisis. So I'm not entirely sure that the polling is actually telling us what we need to know for a lot of people. Uh, on the Republican side, certainly amongst Donald Trump's base, they see the pandemic as being a problem of the Democrats trying to shut down the economy. Um, so it's slightly different, difficult calculation to, to handle. But of course, the fact that the economy is not doing well, that the stock market didn't do well yesterday, that people are concerned about their jobs, um, this can't help the president, most especially um, amongst those voters uh, who are in minority categories, amongst younger voters, 
Um, and amongst older voters, the first two categories, younger voters, minority voters are losing their economic opportunities at a much higher rate than others. Um, and so that really affects how they feel about the current, uh, the current leadership. Leslie, great to catch up as always. Lindsay Vindra Murray there of Chatham House. Thank you very much. Uh, right now, we will digress and move to David Leibovitz of J.P. Morgan Asset Management, of course, trying to bring in a strategy to adapt and adjust to a little bit of a lift in the market in the last 10 minutes. David, I've got to go to the arch question. I mentioned this early this morning. So many of the pullbacks have been truly stochastic, pointy. Down we go, and we come right back up straight, straight, straight. Does this have a stochastic feel to you, or is there something different about this pullback? So I, I think that there there are three issues that, that have really driven the pullback, and there are three somewhat familiar issues. So if we get resolution there, I do think things could bounce back quickly. Uh, unfortunately, I do believe resolution is going to take time. Um, the first thing that's going on is that the virus virus growth is reaccelerating. You're seeing it in Europe. I think that this is much more about the lockdowns that have been imposed in Germany and France and a little bit of, you know, wait, will this happen to me too, uh, than it is necessarily about the impact of the virus on the health of the population. Uh, the second thing, and I think we talked about this a few weeks when I was on with you all, um, policy. You know, policy in the United States on the fiscal side continues to come up short, and essentially that is the bridge that needs to continue being built to get us to the other side of, of this pandemic more broadly. Uh, and then I I think the third thing that's gone on here is that the, there was a lot of good news priced into the market. You know, when we look at the way that stocks have responded to better than expected uh, earnings reports, I mean, they haven't really done all that much. And so there was a lot of good news. There was an assumption on the part of a lot of investors that we weren't going to have another hiccup with the economy. We weren't going to have another hiccup with the virus. And what we're seeing is that that's not necessarily the case. And so I do think that we will bounce back, but, but it may be a little bit more challenging than, uh, than we've seen over the course of the year thus far. David, what do you make of the move in treasuries or the lack thereof, the fact that yields have been so resilient and actually moved higher even in the face of equity volatility? So I think a big part of it is when you decompose what's moving Treasury yields, um, it's really more about an increase in the term premium than it is about an increase in inflation expectations. And what that represents to us is a little bit greater uncertainty around the direction of travel broadly. And, you know, if we were seeing yields back up on higher inflation expectations, uh, that would be a signal to us that investors are pricing in better economic growth. Um, I think that this backup in yields that we've seen and the firmness in yields that we've seen represents a fairly wide distribution of outcomes that could materialize over the course of the coming months. Um, and obviously, that's feeding through into the performance of FX and then more recently, the uh, the equity markets more broadly. When you read your economics at J.P. Morgan, do you filter in a disinflationary trend or are you people on board a true inflation to come? So I think it's it's a good question. And what I would say is that for everybody within the, the walls of Morgan, with my opinion, there's somebody with, with the opposite opinion. Um, in the short run, we don't view inflation as a risk. We think output gaps are wide, unemployment rates are elevated, and we would be surprised to see inflation pick up here in the very short term. Um, long term, and there's a lot of debate on this, uh, we do think that inflation will remain in check. And I am more in the disinflationary camp. Uh, we obviously have seen this massive debt build over the course of the past couple of David Leibovitz there of JP Morgan Asset Management. Forgive me, David, just some cracks in the line there as you were completing that last line. Forgive me, David, I'm sorry. 
Right now, we want to speak with Alberto Gallo with Real Money at Risk at Algebras Investments. He has been wonderful for us on opportunities out there in fixed income. Alberto, there must be great comfort right now in cash. For Alberto Gallo, is cash an asset? It is, and if interest rates are really so low, the opportunity cost of uh, holding a bit more uh, in liquidity is much lower because you're giving up very low yields. Many government bonds are in negative yields. So we don't want to be invested all the time. We want to be invested when there's an opportunity. And you know the sell-off that we're seeing in over the past few days is starting to become an opportunity in some areas because the backstop by central banks and governments is very strong. There's a lot of discussion about what the ECB will do. They can obviously they can increase quantitative easing. They can also increase the TLTRO, so the uh, the loans that the ECB gives to banks in size or maturity. But also Germany, very important. Uh, they announced a support for small businesses for up to 75% of their revenue. So the government will pay anything up to 75% of revenue lost during the lockdown. So these things are very powerful. And we've got fiscal policy as well, not just uh, central banks. What's so interesting here in Alberta, I think we can take it right over to other central banks, including Mr. Powell. The headline December forecasts will allow recalibration of stimulus. Are you investing and putting capital at risk understanding that Madame Lagarde may change the rules of the game in December? So we're we're having a you know a virus resurgence today, and it's gonna come you know across Europe and probably also in the U.S. But the reaction function of policymakers will be pretty strong in December with more quantitative easing from the ECB, potentially also from the Fed, and then we have the vaccine. So you know short term the situation is bearish, but medium term, if you just look two months away, you have these very strong backstops to guarantee the survival of the economy. So it it is a very uh, positive environment for uh, selling puts on the economy, so for buying credit. Sovereign bonds don't have a lot of value here, so we don't really want to buy what the ECB will buy because boons are already very negative. BDPs offer in Italy offer very little yield. And you know, if governments continue to spend at some point, some you could see some widening. Yesterday and the day before, US treasuries were actually widening as the S&P uh, was falling. So we don't have safe havens anymore. We either have cash and then we have risky assets that may or may not become attractive. And we prefer credit here over, over stocks. You prefer credit. There's a lot to unpack here. Uh, The idea that the ECB is pushing investors out of these safe assets because they offer no value and no hedge. At the same time, credit instruments don't provide a hedge either because companies can go bankrupt and these these investments can get wiped out. What's the bet here? That the ECB is going to delve deeper into credit uh, for their purchases or just that the economy will eventually revive and that you will get at least some of your money back versus equity? So there is no hedge, that's the short answer. So instead of building a portfolio with stocks and government debt, as in the traditional 60-40 portfolio, what we are doing is to have a bit more cash instead of of sovereign debt. And instead of stocks, we're going higher in the capital structure. So rather than having equity, which 
puts you as the most junior uh, stakeholder in a company. We're going a bit higher up in bonds, uh, especially bonds that give you some collateral to assets of a company, maybe ships in the case of a cruise company, airlines, uh, airplanes in case of an airline and so on. Uh, and you can get paid very high yields with some uh, protection in those instruments. So uh, the rationale here is governments are uh, issuing debt at very low levels, uh, negative rates in case of Germany, and they're giving this money to companies to help them to survive. So um, you're, you, there is no safe haven, but you have a fiscal policy uh, backstop for uh, the largest firms, and in the case of Germany, even for the smaller ones. So we're not worried about you know, a massive increase in defaults uh, in Europe. Uh, there may be some sectors that are weak, but you know, we know governments are behind and the economy will survive. And it makes more sense to lend money to these companies than to lend money to the state uh, at negative rates. Alberto, when you talk about holding some cash, you're sort of underscoring this conundrum. You're not getting a lot of returns from the riskier assets and you want to have uh, something on hand if there is an entry point, if things do sell off. What is the appropriate amount of cash now relative <clears throat> to the past that can give you that flexibility while not dragging on your returns too much? Um, in our funds, we have been holding over half before the, the sell-off. We had um, 55% um, in, in the fund they run uh, in January, February, uh, and uh, currently we have around 30%. Uh, generally, we don't want to be below 10%, but we can compensate with investments that make more money in the, in the part that is invested rather than buying, for example, you know, bonds at 2% where you can make two and you can lose 10 if you're wrong. Alberto Gallo, thank you so much. After this important ECB announcement with Algebra's investments, we greatly appreciate that uh, this morning. Right now with a statement on the religion of the market, which is Apple, James Suva joins us with Citigroup. He wrote up a big note the other day, and I said, let us find their senior tech analyst who is in San Francisco Jim Suva, we could talk all day about Apple, whether our, our listeners own it or not. Everybody's curious about the juggernaut. How's Tim Cook doing? Is an opening question. What's he want to get out of this earnings call as he gets ready for a Tim Cook 2021? Well, Tom, it's great to hear from you again, my friend. I'll tell you, Tim Cook, a lot of people always focus on Steve Jobs, and what he did, which was great, of launching the iPhone. Many are now starting to see that Apple is much more than simply a phone maker. When you think about the Apple Watch and the EarPods and the AirPods that are doing so much better with the audio connectivity yeah. and the Apple Watch with healthcare, it is really changing the way we do things. You know, you think about it can detect when somebody falls down. It can help you with your heart rate, your oxygen levels. These are things yeah. that are really game-changing, and they're just at the early innings. So we think he's doing a very yeah. good job of what we call diversifying their product portfolio. And even more important, Jim Suva, radio producers can have it on their wrists so the gentleman from Sparta can email me at 3 a.m. <laughs> Tom, are you awake? Thank you, Apple Watch. What I'm looking at here, Jim Suva, and, I, and Paul and I want to talk financials and less concept, is capital expenditures – are relatively flat compared to the ginormous growth. Does that surprise you? Do you model CapEx to increase? Um, well, that's a very important thing to look at because CapEx, you typically think about building out new factories and new production lines They're to support your future yeah. growth. 
What people forget is Apple, down the street from where I live, put up a brand new, huge, mega headquarters. It's shaped like a circle. It almost looks like a spaceship. It's very beautiful. So when you look at the year-over-year, what we call comparisons, or the rate of change year-over-year, it looks kind of flattish, and you're like, huh, that seems odd. But you got to realize they just finished this mega, mega, mega headquarters. So with that in mind, it actually doesn't surprise us that they're kind of flat. And if you exclude that one time you don't build a new headquarters every year, you know, flat is actually pretty good. And where they're spending the money is a lot on data centers, so when you say, you know, hey, Siri, or you need things with your apps, they simply work. Hey, Jim, you know, one of the big uh, themes around Apple these days is uh, it's back to the phone. It's back to 5G. Do you think of 5G as a quote-unquote super cycle that we used to refer to with Apple, or is it something different? I think it is something different. I think your the terminology we use of super cycles is for those who, of us who are older, who realize super cycles used to be a very big thing in the past where you walk into a cell phone store and all the promotions are centered on one item and everybody's got to have that phone, like the Motorola Razor um, or a certain BlackBerry phone, or we think about you know the initial iPhone or two. Those were got to have phones. Now with the iPhone 5G connectivity, there's not a lot of apps right now. There's not a lot of business case uses for why you got to have a 5G phone. Now, that being said, I'm not negative at all because people working from home, running their ch- children to different events or school or things like that or work remotely want a battery that lasts all day, and they simply want faster download speeds, and the apps are getting more power-hungry. Yeah. And so I think it will be a positive sales cycle, but short of a super cycle. Yeah. I think what the next thing is is a diversified <clears throat> Apple portfolio where Macs right. and iPads and, and watches do a lot better. Buy, hold, sell. Where are you, Jim Suva? Then we got to run. I'm sorry. What was that? Buy, hold, sell. Where are you right now? Um, I am in a buy rating with $125 for Apple, and I've had a buy rating on it for years. Yeah, I remember. You know, I, it was like Lisa was out. Lisa was going down in flames. <laughs> hey, and Suva, I'm here. I'm listening. Suva. So just be careful. Carry on. <laughs> No, I meant, no, Lisa, a computer. I mean, did you see that, Jim, the disrespect I get from Abramowitz? I'm talking about Lisa the computer. Uh-huh. Lisa wasn't even born when the Lisa computer. Maybe, Lisa, you were named after the Lisa uh, computer. Jim Suva, thank you so much for breaking up the Thanksgiving discussion here with Lisa Abramowitz. Pass the potatoes. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.